I, I have to be honest with you, Scott, I have no idea why I chased this. Why a businessman, 42 years of age, would just decide, oh, I don't own a camera. I'm going to, I'm going to take up and not just grab a camera, but I'm going to, I'm going to have a five by seven Bellows uh, camera made from scratch. And I'm going to practice 160 year old photographic process. I don't know how I found myself here, but now that I'm here, it really feels like it's what I've always been meant to do. Like, and I've had great successes in my business. life. This photography podcast is brought to you by frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are going old school, and we are going deep into a really, really wonderful type of photography that's not practiced very much anymore and really frankly when you see it it's going to knock your socks off we're talking with shane balkowicz shane happens to live just a couple hours west of me out here on the great plains of the of north america up in north dakota shane good afternoon how's everything out in the middle part of the state good scott uh, thanks for having me on we got a little snow last night which was uh, very welcomed Got a little snow over here. It's cold. It's January. It's, it's everything people imagine about winter on the American prairie. As it, as it should be. As it should be. You're absolutely right. Shane, you are just absolutely mesmerizing with the work you're doing. You do wet plate collodon photography. You do one, one of the earliest styles of photography. And I'll admit, you know, when I first heard about it, I thought, why in the world would anyone want to go through that amount of work for an image that I can, you know, do in my mirrorless or DSLR very quickly? And then I realized how wrong I was. I can't do that image, and I certainly can't come up with the product that you've come up with. So first question for people that, that aren't familiar with the process, what is wet plate photography? What is the whole Collidon process? Yeah, so a wet plate uh, collodion photography was invented by Frederick Scott Archer, and uh, he started working on it about 1848, we believe. And in 1851, he came out with a journal article in a scientific journal and presented it to the world. So what we're doing, I'm sure many of your listeners know about the daguerreotype process, which uh, mm -hmm. was invented by the daguerre, the Frenchman, um, about 10 years before wet plating. So Frederick Scott Archer wanted to improve on that. And uh, this is what he came up with. And, and, and the final product and what, you know, your comment about why you can't capture a wet plate in a modern uh, digital camera is that uh, this is completely analog. And the final images, the images that I make, I'm an ambrotypist. That means I make my photographs on glass, specifically for me, black glass. And these images are made out of pure silver on glass. And what's beautiful about uh, silver is silver does not degrade. So these images that I have uh, have made over the last eight years, I've made about 3,800 of them, all 8 by 10, most, mostly 8 by 10 uh, black glass amber types. Uh, they'll be here a thousand years from now unbroken, which, you, which is not something that you can save for prints and pigments and paintings and other things like that. So these, these are very archival images. And it's just a very, very romantic process. Um, I was never a photographer before uh, 2012. I took my first exposure on October 4th, never owned a camera. And I just uh, find myself chasing this this historic process. It, it is 
Really, really interesting. And we need to tell people that there is a movie out there. It's called Balkowicz, B-A-L-K-O-W-I-T-S-C-H. It's on Vimeo. It's on Amazon Prime. It is a documentary about you and your work. And folks, you need to go there. You need to watch this film. If you are into any kind of photography, you need to go do this. But Shane, one of the things that really intrigued me watching the film is that most of us that are into photography, you know, we're making files. We're making digital files or, you know, we're coming up, even if we're still dealing with old 35 millimeter film or that kind of stuff or medium format film, you know, we come up with a negative, but then, you know, the actual print is a temporary thing. You, much more like to say a sculptor, are making an object, this glass plate, and it's not revisable. You can't go back and tweak the highlights. You can't go back and add grain if you want. What, what is the appeal of making that object versus a kind of idea? Well, you have to understand, um, most wet plate collodion artists, um, as, as, there was one here in Bismarck, North Dakota, Orlando Scott Goff, when he, he was known for capturing the first ever photograph of Sitting Bull here in Bismarck in the, mm -hmm. in this process that I practice. And I, I happened to capture Ernie Lapointe, the great grandson of Sitting Bull, 135 years later in the same town in the same process. But Goff would have made a negative, like you had said, and he would have made a glass negative. So instead of putting his images onto black glass, which you cannot do contact prints with, he would have used clear glass. And with that clear glass, as you uh, insinuated, you can make multiple copies. And you can, and the, the final product in that scenario is a print because you, you want to be able to sell, you know, a print to Shane, a print to Scott, whoever wants to buy a print, you can make as many prints of these as you want because you were in business. And it did you no good to have a one off plate because you, you there's only one of them. And, and you, you know, when you're talking about 1851, there's no way of duplicating. They didn't have scanners and, you know, we couldn't do anything like that. So, you know, I, I think there's something, um, very special about the, the fact that these images are um, one-offs and that they, they can never um, be duplicated and they can never be replicated. When I make one of these images, um, I've, for instance, I've dropped an, an image once and tried to go, you know, five minutes later, 10 minutes later, and try to make the same image with the same sitter, the same camera, the same lens, the same chemistry, and I can never get back to that. So if you look at this romantically, I'm not actually taking snapshots of people. I'm actually making 10-second movies. Um, still life movies because my exposure is in my natural light studio that I built here in Bismarck. It's called Nostalgic Glass Wet Plate Studio. The first one in, in the country built uh, from the ground up in over 100 years. I'm making 10 second exposures. So there's heartbeats and there's blood flowing through the person. There's a couple, maybe a blink or two. And what I really love about this is maybe there's a thought. So I'm capturing a thought on that piece of glass and pure silver that will be here long after we're all gone. That's that's fantastic. And, you know, watching the movie and I was looking at those 10 second deals. The, you know, the people who are sitting for you, your citizens, they got 10 seconds. They have to be as still as a human being can be. Yeah. And, and you sort of prep them for it. You say blink, you say blink, you know, you get that sort of out of their system and then you tell them to stop. When you've got that 10 seconds, what, what, what do you think is going through their mind? What's going through your mind? Why is that a special amount of time? Well, I think it's special for my sitters because, you know, everyone has, you know, there's a glut of digital photographs nowadays. We're all carrying cameras around in our back pockets and our phones. And, they, you know, the composition, I mean, you, you get some of these some of these shots, some of these art pieces that I put together, maybe take an hour's worth of composition and getting the lighting just right. Last week I did a double exposure, it took me an hour and a half. 
So, you know, for the sitter, they see this involvement that they're not used to seeing involvement. I mean, usually sitters nowadays with these instant one sixtieth of a second photographs, there isn't much involvement uh, by the sitter. Uh, when you come into my studio, um, I've got an historic head brace. So, to, you know, to help you not move. So those those photographs of Abraham Lincoln, that's what your listeners have to, you know, you got to put yourself back in the Victorian era. You got to think about Abraham Lincoln had his one of the first photographs of Abraham Lincoln was it was a wet plate. You know, there's a head brace. There's a, a metal apparatus that, you know, grabs you by the back of the head and holds your head completely still for these long exposures. And, and to be honest, 10 seconds was probably um, in a studio was probably a fast exposure back then with their old brass lenses and stuff. They probably had, you know, 40 second exposures, a minute and a half exposures. These exposure times get rather long and lengthy. So I can be the most brilliant photographer, which I'm not, but I could be behind the camera. But if my sitter does not perform, if they do not perform for me, there's this dance between them and myself. If they can't do what I need them to do, the image is lost. So no longer is it just the responsibility of the photographer, but the sitter has this responsibility. And you have to understand, if you look at my images, none of these people are professional professional models. So um, they come into my studio. I've got to give them the song and dance and tell them what, what I'm going to need of them. And um, there's a lot of coaching and a lot of reassuring them that I will I'll walk them through this. and that, but, it, but it's all about the end result. And I've always said the harder it is to get to that final image, the more difficult it was on me, the more difficult it was on the sitter. I think that difficulty translates into the image. And I think it makes the image more special. The images are certainly evocative and, and uh, profound when you're looking at them. Let, let's back up just a little bit. You said you were you don't you don't consider yourself or you didn't consider yourself a photographer. I know from the film that you were into making marionettes, for example. I mean, you, you were searching for uh, an artistic impression. Talk to me a little bit about you know who you were before you discovered this and the moment when you said, "Hey, this is the direction I think I want to go." Well, I'm an entrepreneur, so for the last 23 years, I've been running Balkwitch.com, which is an online company here. Started in my mom's basement back in 1998 with $50, and I think I was getting burnt out. I've always appreciated the arts. I always loved poetry. I've loved music. I've loved paintings. I love photography, but I never really, you know, I don't have many talents. I have no talents, in fact, in that regard. So I was always either hiring um, artists to do different things, commission pieces for me. And then this uh, presented itself. And I have, I, I have to be honest with you, Scott, I have no idea why I ch chased this, why a businessman, um, you know, 42 years of age would just decide, oh, I don't own a camera. I'm going to, I'm going to take up a uh, I not just grab a camera, but I'm going I'm to have a five by seven Bellows uh, camera made from scratch. And I'm going to practice a 160 year old photographic process. I don't know how I found myself here, but now that I'm here, it really feels like it's what I've always been meant to do. Like, and I've had great successes in my business life and, and in my personal life and nothing compares to what I'm able to do here. Or for me personally, as rewarding as this. So you know, I, how you find yourself here, you, you just, you just never know. And, and I, I think I was running from something. I, I was, I was burnt out at the job and I just was looking for an outlet and um, this just fell on my lap and, and I just had the stupidity to chase it. I think that's anything but stupidity. I think that's wonderful. So you, you don't just run down to Target and buy one of these cameras. You said you had the first one made from scratch. How did you go about learning the process? 
Well, I didn't know an F stop from, from anything. I mean, I didn't know, I, I had never stepped <laughs> in a dark room before. So I, it wasn't like, oh, I went to, you know, film school or I had a, took a college course where I actually had some dark room experience and I knew what, what has to happen in a dark room or what, what is, what even happens in a dark room? I mean, I had no experience whatsoever. So I, you know, I knew I needed a camera. So I found the star camera company, um, gentleman makes hand, handmade cameras that are, from models that are, you know, from the Victorian era. And he made me my five by seven camera. And I found a lens from over in Europe and I got my chemistry together, got some trays together and uh, did a bunch of reading, a bunch, a bunch of reading. But it was about uh, the, the, from the day that I was introduced and when I first saw my first wet plate to the point of where as a non-photographer, I made my own exposure was about 45 days. So within oh my. 45 days, I had this all... I'm, I'm one of those guys that's, I'm all in on things in my, mm-hmm. in my you know, I think my wife and talks about that a little bit in the documentary, <laughs> um, much to her dismay. When I go chase something, I chase it rather hard. I, I fall down uh, into this hole and I just continue to go. So I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't, I didn't know what it took. I didn't know anything about photography at all. I, you know, I, I have to be honest and I've said this before and I know it sounds really silly, but I don't even think I realized at first that I was using light to actually make these images. I knew I had to have light stands and stuff like, but it just didn't really occur to me that, oh, hold on a moment. My method of applying this silver to the plate is the way that I vary my lighting. And, and when you're just chasing an image and all you're trying to do is get an image, you know, the last thing you really are worried about is, you know, um, composition and light source you know you're just I was just trying to get an image of these people that were sitting in front of my camera and there was nothing artistic about it it was more a trial and error and I I just kept going and kept going and played after plate after plate and then I I started figuring it out slowly but surely but it it all came no books um, you know to speak of on you know concepts of photography or anything like that. It was just trial and error one after another. If, if, you know, my 12 seconds didn't work, then I tried eight seconds of eight seconds didn't work. I tried nine and I just, I just kept going. You discovered something and, and this became then you know, the, the source of your studio. You had some electric lights at the very beginning of, of your experience with this whole process. And for the most part, you've given that up. You, you've built a, a natural light studio. So tell me about the studio, but tell me also about how you discovered that and made that change. Well, my, you know, when you start and you're just kind of, you know, I called it my makeshift studio. My first studio was in the back warehouse of my, uh, my company and, and like Fridays would come around and the UPS guy would come in and I have all the red lights on and I'd, I'd have to have the door locked and they'd come in and they'd, they'd uh, you know, they'd ruin my plates and it was a disaster. So, but I, I was doing continuous lights. So you, um, you know, this, this process, I should let for some of the technical people know it, it lights ultraviolet light. So this process is is very ultraviolet light driven versus the other end of the spectrum infrared. You get these continuous daylight bulbs that are trying to mimic what the sun does. And I knew that, that it was mimicking what the sun was doing, these continuous bulbs, and I was getting these 10 seconds of exposure. And then I took my camera outside one day and I took a portrait outside and it was like this aha moment of like, why is this so much better? Why are the tones and why is, why is the light so much more beautiful on this plate 
outside versus inside. And then I did some, you know, did some research and, and, you know, these natural light studios, I mean, they didn't have electricity back in the 1850s. So candle power isn't strong enough. A bonfire is not strong enough to do an exposure in the middle of the night. So they would use a northern facing, depending on where your studio is, um, I'm facing away from the, the sun. So in the north here, I'd have northern facing lights. And once I started using natural light, um, I, 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 I say it all the time, natural light is king. And once I started using it, the, the artificial light just failed miserably in comparison. And it was just something that I, I wanted to get away from. My old studio, my makeshift studio that I called it, it had no windows. So I had no opportunities for natural light. We're here in North Dakota. So what, nine months out of the year, it's cold out and conditions aren't perfect. It's windy, whatever it is. So it's not like we're doing a lot of outdoor shooting, right? So. Right. I was stuck in my warehouse until I built this studio. And uh, Dr. Raymer wrote a definitive book in 1906 about building the best natural light studio, photography studio at the time. And I read this uh, book from 120 years ago or 115 years ago. And I took the pitch and the, the dimensions for my windows and everything right from his book. And I built my own, my own studio here in my backyard. And you had a little bit of a challenge just with the glass. Yeah, because um, all glass, all modern, 99.9% of modern glass, which wasn't a problem that they had back in the Victorian era, it was all single pane glass, um, has some kind of UV protection. So there's either a piece of film between two sheets of glass that gives you UV protection, or there's some gas between two panes of glass that give you UV because people don't want their carpets and their couches and their flooring and everything, you know, destroyed by the, the natural light over the years. And so all Modern windows, you know, they don't work. So that glass does not work. I, I learned the lesson the hard way. I was doing a TEDx talk out at the University of Mary and giving a demonstration. And they had like a 50 foot tall glass wall of wind, just glass, beautiful glass. It was, you know, the setting sun, it was beautiful light. So I was looking at, I was looking at all this beautiful light off my sitter, looking through the back of my ground glass on my camera. Oh, this is going to be perfect. I had ample light. You know, my lies were not going to deceive me. I had ample light to do this portrait inside through this big, huge window. I did the exposure and the plate was completely black. And what I learned, the hard lesson that I learned is that without the UV, I can't make my images. So it took me about six months to sort the glass out. And that was your question. I found out that um, what industry wants as much UV into their space as possible. And the only answer that I could come up with is greenhouses. So there's about 3,600 pounds of greenhouse glass that allows 96% of the UV uh, into my creative space, allowing me to make these wet plates. Because you, you have a greenhouse, you don't want UV protection because you're essentially blocking out some of the rays that would help your plants grow faster. Right. The TED Talk is a wonderful transition into some of the images. We can start telling the stories of individual photos here. One of your early ones that you talk about in the film is Evander Holyfield. Tell me how that came to be and, and, and what became then of that plate. Yeah, so Virgil Hill, um, a well-known boxer here, probably the most famous boxer, pugilist from North Dakota, was an mm -hmm. Olympian. I uh, got in touch with him and invited him to my studio. He was a complete stranger, invited him to my studio. And he said, sure, I'll come and give you an hour, Shane. You can take my portrait. He was in town for something. And he came in and spent like three and a half, four hours with me. I mean, I, I mean, we just, he was showing me, I, by the end of the day, I mean, he was wrapping my hands on properly how I could wrap my hands if I ever had to wrap my hands for a boxing match. Um, it was just a wonderful experience. And, and he just fell in love with this process. I mean, some people just come in and they just, they're just ducks on water. They just, it, they just take to it naturally and they, they immediately understand what it is I'm trying to do. And when that happens, it's very beautiful. And 
uh, Virgil says, you know, he shook my hand and, and gave me a hug and said, I'm going to get the champ out here. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I'm going to get Evander Holyfield into your studio. And I said, that, that I think I said bullshit. Um, and, uh, <laughs> he said, and, you know, about a week and a half later, I was at my daughter's volleyball game on a Saturday and the person called, and I've told this story many times, but it's kind of fun. A person called me on the phone and said, the champ will give you an hour if you can pick him up at the hotel in 10 minutes. And I said, I'll be there in eight. And mm-hmm. I pulled up to the hotel and Evander Holyfield come sat in my car and drove him down to the studio. And we made, I want to say we made five or six plates on that day. The plate called The Real Deal, which is a portrait of him. I wanted to get... I wanted to get the boxer with his, you know, his mitts and his shirt off. I wanted to get the, I wanted to get the fighter. You know what I mean? I wanted to get that, that, that energy and that, that look mm-hmm. from him. And I didn't know how about to go about asking the four-time heavyweight champion of the world how to take his shirt off, but he was very cordial and took his shirt off and, and put his fists up to my camera. And we made that image and that image um, made it into the Smithsonian Institute, into their portrait gallery. The first photograph that they've ever accepted of him into their portrait gallery, which is you know, this was probably two and a half years into me starting photography. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just crazy craziness. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really compute if you if you look at it that way. But um, I was very honored to have uh, my, that plate of Evander Holyfield go into the Smithsonian Institute. Well, you you certainly had some early and and now continued success with this whole process to make it a, a little bit more real. W- walk us through taking one of these images to say you you and holyfield walk into the studio you know you haven't got it set up you're not prepared you don't just drop a you know a piece of film in the back of the camera and hit click there's a whole prep process walk us through beginning middle and end of making one of these images sure Sure. Well, essentially what I'm doing is I'm making sheet film out of glass and, and, and silver nitrate, okay, for your listeners. So I have to figure out how to make my own. So I don't have the, I, I see here all the, the sad stories of all my photography friends saying, oh, this film was discontinued, this film was discontinued, and, you know, they're hoarding refrigerators full of film to, to save their favorite film. And I don't have that issue because I, I make my film on demand. So, you know, I start with 24 by 24 inch sheets of black glass, something similar to like stained glass that you'd find in a church. This is very expensive. Understand, um, even if you calculate how much uh, a eight by 10 piece of glass, so each one of my exposures, if we just talk about the cost of glass is about $12. So I cut this piece of glass down by hand and I clean it. Um, most people would use Windex or something to clean it. I found a, a historic recipe for whiting, which is was the housewife's recipe for window cleaner, which is calcium carbonate and Everclear. So there's this bottled whiting that I clean the glass really good with. It does an amazing job cleaning glass. And it's about a 150-year-old recipe for window cleaner. Um, and it's always good to have, you know, Everclear sitting around um, <laughs> and uh, on a Friday afternoon. Then we, uh, you know, we do the composition. I get my sitter in the pose. I, you know, open up the blinds here, get the light on him, use any kind of reflector. I've got a large reflector if I want to reflect the dark side or whatever. And then I go into the dark room and I, I pour the plate. So I take Clodian. Clodian had a medical application back in the 1850s, Civil War era. A doctor would have a bottle of ether because he would put people to sleep. If he had to pull a tooth or do surgery or something on somebody, he'd have a bottle of ether. He would go to his gunsmith and he would get gun cotton or wadding, that what they would shove down at the end of their rifles. You, that was made out of cellulose. 
and he would uh, the doctor would stuff this cellulose inside his his ether and it would make collodion so um if you're in you know in battle and someone you know cuts your arm with a, a saber or something the doctor quickly could come over to your open wound and pour collodion into your wound and hold your wound shut and seal your wound in the field so there was like this it was like an, a chemical bandage that Frederick Scott Archer knew about. So there was his glue. He needed to figure out how am I going to get silver molecules onto a plate? And I, I wanted to also explain really quickly, technically, you know, I'm an amber typist, so I make my wet plates on glass, but they're also tin typists. Don't get that confused. It's the same process. It's just you make your images on on tin, which is very popular back then as well. So okay. a tin type and amber type, it's, this is all still wet plate. So then uh, Archer figured out, okay, so I got my glue. I figured out this liquid bandage stuff. He figured out, and where, where the, the big, you know, the aha moment came for him is that he figured out if he added bromide salts to the collodion, he would get salted collodion. And w- with salted collodion, you could get silver nitrate to jump out of a silver nitrate bath and, and impregnate um, this collodion on this plate. So what I do is after, you know, I get my composition together, I go back in the dark room and I grab my glass piece my clean glass piece, and I pour the clothing on there, and then I um, immerse the plate into silver nitrate uh, for three minutes. And during that time, the bromide is is attracting the silver molecules out of the silver nitrate bath, making a photosensitive plate. I then load the plate into my plate holder, take it out to my camera, and I do my exposure. And then I take the the plate back, plate holder back into the dark room. I develop the plate rinse it really well. I fixed the plate back in the day. I use a rapid fix or, you know, hypo fix that, you know, from, you know, film days back in the 1950s, which is much safer. My comrades in the Victorian era would have used potassium cyanide in liquid form, um, a very dangerous um, mm-hmm. liquid to fix their plates. And then it's a rinsing and then silver molecules. Uh, you know, once you got your image, so the image dries, you get the, the silver. So what's left is once the plate dries is pure silver on glass. And what's beautiful about silver, like I talked about earlier, is it doesn't degrade. It's completely archival. The one thing I, I tell the students when they come out, if you put a silver spoon on the ground and you come back 500 years from now, what do you have on the ground? And the answer always must be a silver spoon. And that's what you have with these images. But that silver spoon would have changed. That silver spoon would have tarnished. It would have oxidized. Oxygen would have gotten to it and it would have become dark and dull. We don't want that to happen to our images. So they did figure out in the Victorian era, if they pour a shellac or a varnish over the silver molecules, they block out all the oxygen from getting to the molecules. And at that point, the plate plate is completely archival. So it's it's a process and it's called wet plate for a reason if that plate dries at any time during this so there's no pouring a plate and then going and having a sandwich or something i have to i have to quickly i can't over you know over um sensitize the plate i've, I've got to get it out of the plate uh, out of the bath i've got to get in the camera and before it dries it's got to get through the developer and the fixer and everything or we lose the image so and and that's why from about 1851 to about 1885 this process ruled the world i mean this gave photography, this process gave photography to almost everyone. And then by 1885, they figured out dry plating. And when they figured out dry plating, the wet plate thing just became very uh, quickly obsolete. And what was going with dry plates is you could buy your plates like from Kodak Eastman uh, in sleeves and you just keep them in in the dark and you could load sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet and you could develop them days or weeks later which allowed photographers to go into the field for a week take a bunch of photographs and come back two weeks later and do their developing and their fixing and and all their varnishing and stuff later and and as soon as you freed the photographer up from the dark room um, this was the big 
technological change. As soon as you could free the photographer up from the darkroom, the wet plate had no place anymore. Well, you you are not bound to your studio, though. There, there's a couple of your images, a couple of your famous images that I want to talk about. And, and, and probably, at least as, as far as I know with your work, you know, one of the best field pieces is the image of Greta Thunberg out at the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. T- tell us the story of, of that image. So I heard on the grapevine, uh, people were messaging me, Greta's coming to North Dakota, Greta's coming to North Dakota, you have to get her photograph, you have to get her wet plate. And I'm like, sure, I mean, how am I going to, I don't I don't know Greta, you know, it's almost like, how am I going to get Evander Holyfield in the studio, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I mm-hmm. don't know her people or anything like that, but, you know, I've been on my, my, my Native American series in Northern Plains Native Americans, a modern wet plate perspective for about six years at the time, five years at the time, and I have a lot of friends in Standing Rock. So I didn't know where she was actually coming, but people kept telling me, you got to get her photo. And then I found out that she was coming to Standing Rock. As soon as I, she came to Standing Rock, I knew that I, you know, I could make a call. I had someone I could call. So I made that call to Jen Jewett down there at, you know, on the reservation. And um, I said, you know, if you can give me, you know, famous last words, right? If you can give me 15 minutes with Greta Thunberg, <laughs> understand, you know, if they give me 15 minutes, that's 15 minutes less that the elders and the, the children and everyone else gets to spend with her, right? I mean, right. you're giving up time with one of the most significant young women in modern history. You know, if you can give me 15 minutes of uh, with Greta, I will, I will capture her wet plate for her family and her legacy and for history. And, uh, you know, it was the, but it was those relationships that I had built down there. And I got a call back about a couple hours later and said, Shane, we will give you your 15 minutes with Greta. And, um, that's, that's, I went down to Standing Rock with the, you know, again, I can't, you know, I got my beautiful, huge dark room here in my studio that I built, but, you know, there I have to put my dark room, which is essentially a germination tent. It's about four feet by two feet in size. And I have to, stick my head in it and pull this black shroud over me. And I got these bicycle red lights hanging from it in the inside. And I've got to develop and fix and everything, these plates in the field, in this little box. And that, and that's what they would have done years ago. You would have had your, your wood box with the, in the back of your wagon. And, you know, they didn't have electric bicycle lights, red lights to use, but they would, uh, they would have a red stained glass windows in this, in this box. So they would shroud all the natural light uh, from getting into their box and the, the sun would come through the side of these red, uh, ruby red glass windows and, and provide them with the darkroom. And, and that's where they did their work. And it turned out to be one of the most famous pictures in the last several years of any sort. You know, it's hanging up here in Fargo. It's in the National Museum. It, it's, it is the image of her that I think most people associate with. Yeah, it, it made it, uh, that plate made it into the Library of Congress, which was my first plate in the Library of Congress, which was also a rather a huge honor. Greta shared that image and it, there was over 3 million likes and shares on social media at last count. So it's probably the most, you know, the most seen modern day wet plate of, of all time. And, and it is an evocative, wonderful picture. I, and again, I think the 10-second the exposure there really works to the advantage of the image because... That was three seconds there. That was F83. Oh, that was three? Yeah, because um, I, I have 10 seconds in studio because I don't have this 360 degrees of light. So outside, ah. I, can get my, I can get my exposures down to one, two seconds outside. Depending on, on, you know, depending on the kind of light. So, yeah, that was a, that was a gut, complete gut check guess. Um, remember, I only had 15 minutes with her, and it takes about 15 yep. minutes to make a wet plate. So if I would overexpose or underexpose that plate, 
there would be no standing for us all with Greta Thunberg. And, you know, she got quickly after I was done, I got two plates of her, by the way. Her father saw the the image of Greta, which was the close-up. I wanted to do a documentary piece of her. So I did a close-up of her and they told me, you only have time for one photograph. And when they saw Greta, the, the close-up of her come to life, I looked up at her dad and I said, can I do one more? And he said, absolutely. And that gave me my chance for standing for us all. But I didn't have, I didn't have no opportunity. I had no opportunity to miss that. So you go to Standing Rock with a portable dark room, you know, how crazy is this? <laughs> if I told anyone with a modern camera, you're going to, you're going to get to your 15 minutes with Greta. But by the way, your digital camera only allows two exposures. That's all you get. Doesn't matter. Doesn't yep. matter how many you want to take. You get two exposures. You get 15 minutes and two exposures with Greta. What do you got? And, yeah. and um, I, it, it's, it's daunting. It's daunting. It, it's impressive is what it is. is, is. You can't sit down in the evening with a glass of wine and Lightroom and start playing with the sliders. Um, you got to get it right. You, you mentioned, you referenced just a second ago that you knew people at, at Standing Rock. So I want you to talk a little bit about the Northern Plains Native Americans Project. This is the subject of your book. Tell me about this project. Yeah, so Northern Plains Native Americans, A Modern Wet Plate Perspective is a 20-year journey it's going to take me about 20 years um, projected to capture 1,000 Native Americans in the historic wet plate collodion process. So every 250 images, and I'm approaching 500. So book two came out about a year and a half ago. The book is, uh, the limited edition version of the book is already sold out of the 1,000 copies, but there are some trade edition books. If you search on Amazon, you can. it's called Northern Plains Native Americans, A Modern Wet Plate Perspective. You can still find some copies out there of the trade edition. And um, so every 250 images, I will, I pick my favorite 50 images and I do a book. And you know, so at the end of this series, after this 20 years, I will have a volume of four books showing my favorite, you know, my favorite 200 images from the series. And, and it's just been, it's my life's work. I do a lot of other creative work, you know, like, you know, example, the Greta Thunberg stuff, and I do other creative work in my studio, but my Native American series and what, what I'm trying to achieve here is my life's work. I, I, I take it very seriously. Um, I've been honored with my own Native American name, Meishti um, Ekagoche, in Hadatsa, given to me by the, the elder Kelvin Grinnell from the MHA Nation, uh, which means shadow catcher. And talk about an honor. I mean, talk about an honor to be able to uh, earn the trust of, of these, these beautiful people. And, and they come in here. I've had, I had Native Americans come in from Florida and from San Francisco from Texas, from all over the, the country. Um, Deb Halland, the, the Native American, first Native American congresswoman, flew all the way in from Washington, D.C. to speak at my book signing to have her portrait taken for the series. So, you know, it's, it's a huge honor to be, be doing this, but it, I really, it's, it's the foundation and, uh, of my work. And, you know, it's, it's every week trying to schedule people to come in and, 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 and get, you know, some weeks I maybe get two or three images for the series and other weeks maybe I get one or I don't even get one. So a thousand images, it, it, it's, it's taken me almost seven years now for 400 and I don't know, 58. It's taken me seven years to get 458 of them. Well, well, if, if time equals value, it's, it's certainly paying off here because these are images that basically, you know, stop your breathing and stop your soul for a little bit. They, they are magnificent. Could be talking about those uh, in another format a little bit later. This is not the only series that you're involved in, though. You had your work featured on the Fence Project from Photoville, which just came through town, a COVID-19 so social isolation wet plate series. 
The inspiration for that obviously is around all of us every day, but how did you see a connection between COVID and wet plate work? Well, I mean, I run the business Monday through Thursday, so I'm, I, I only create in my studio on Fridays. So, um, you know, the pandemic came out and we went into lockdown and we didn't know what was going on with this pandemic. And, and so my Friday was here upon me and I had no sitters. I had to cancel everyone. And I wasn't going to stop me from creating. So, you know, I did a series of, um, I've always, I'm not short of ideas. I did a series of, of plates that, um, you know, the first one was my, my son with a gas mask on. And, you know, I did one with my daughter, um, uh, Olivia, called uh, Girl with a Virus. Um, where she's standing, looking down at an exercise ball that she hand painted that looks like the virus, and she's sitting there with this gas mask on, with this pretty dress. That was probably the most popular plate for that for that series. But it was out of necessity, Scott. Um, I didn't have any sitters. I, you know, I was I was not going to create, so um, I had my family up at the house. So I, my family came down, and we did this series of plates over so many weeks, and. Um, it was really enjoyable. I got all my family was uh, my wife was involved. My um, my son and my my two daughters and, and my wife were involved in this. And I did a self portrait as well. And uh, all those plates went to the Plains Art Museum there in in Fargo. Um, the entire series, the whole collection, because they thought that it would be important to kind of document what was going on here and what 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 we were going through. And and I and I hope those images do that. I think they do. It's you do not think small you you think large it seems like you know in almost everything that you do so there's one more image i want you to talk about and tell the story of very famous painting over in the louvre uh, liberty leading the people it's the woman with the flag during the french revolution you did a, you did a take on that well which you call liberty trudges through injustice it had well i don't know how many people are in that but th- there's got to be 20 25 people were involved 50, okay. 52 people, not not in the photograph, but 52 people, including makeup, hair, wardrobe. You know, I had a fireman on set to set that fire behind them. For, for, the, for the people that haven't seen it, tell, tell us what the image looks like and tell us the story of it's coming to be. You know, we find inspiration. I've been doing these large collaborations for some years now. I started with Murderer's Gulch, which was a, uh, a scene downtown here in in uh, Bismarck, which is based off an historic alley where 14 people lost their lives over a certain amount of time. And we did a piece based off the raft of the Medusa. And, you know, Liberty trudges through injustice. It just kind of seemed like I I like that painting and and it, it seemed grand, you know, grandiose in scope. And, and, and I was able to go over to the Louvre and see this thing on the wall. And, and I mean, it's just, it's gargantuan. And I thought, well, maybe we can we can do that, and we and we shot. If, if your your listeners go on to Google and just type in "Liberty trudges through injustice wet plate," they will see the image. It'll come up there. It's also on my Wikipedia page. I knew that I could do this, and and we could do this. So, fifty two of us set out over eight months, and uh, we um, you know got the costumes together, got every, the set put together, um, and borrowed some very expensive guns from the state historical society i mean it's all about collaboration right so people hear about these things and 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 everyone just we we work with zero budget everyone who's involved the own i don't make any money off these these, these this collaborations it's all about us as a society as a local group coming together of artists um, for doing nothing more than than um, creating something um, and at the end everyone gets a limited edition print and that's your payment and uh, it, it's worked out beautifully this um 
you know, this, this July coming up this year, we're going to, we're, we found a 15th century painting uh, about the virus and we're going to be capturing, um, it's, it's called no vaccine for death is the name of the, our next big collaboration. And I have 112 people as of right now, um, involved in that. And oh uh, we will descend on university of Mary and, um, there's skeletons and dead bodies and, and boats and, and we're not trying to mimic exactly these paintings. We try to make them our own, but we're, we're inspired by them. I mean, I think all artists, and it's good to be inspired by other art. And um, if you've never done art before, it's good to always have like this reference, like this is our inspiration. This is what we're going for. This gives you the mood of what we're going to do, but we're going to make it our own. And it's it's always it's always been very rewarding, but it's all about collaboration. And um, I got the same, you know, a, a bunch of the same people all the time join me on the same hair and makeup people and the costumes. And then I got my carpenter that comes in and uh, Jason Luter does all the sets. And then uh, Merrick Doyce from the, the film direct um, teacher instructor out at the university of Mary, he's my director and I just get to do the camera work and, and we just all come together and everyone brings what they can and, and the images speak for themselves. That, that is fantastic. For everybody listening, once again, the film is simply called Balkowicz, B-A-L-K-O-W-I-T-S-C-H, subtitle, An Artist's Journey to Preserve Humanity. The studio is the Nostalgic Glass Wet Plate Studio in Bismarck, North Dakota. And the website, a bit of a long address here, SharonCall.Balkowicz.com, S-H-A-R-O-N-C-O-L dot B-A-L-K-O-W-I-T-S-C-H dot com. I really, really recommend that all of you go check out all three of these. I did a chance to watch the film last night. It, it's well worth the time and, and the six bucks to watch the film. Yeah, if the, your listeners want to find my work online, uh, which is much easier, if you just go onto Google and type in Balkowicz wet plate, um, there's there's many, many articles <laughs> out there and, and different images that you can enjoy. And and I would, you know, if any of your listeners are ever, um, I, I, I love one of the things that I, you know, I built this studio because I wanted to be like the cornerstone and the foundation. I wanted to be like a creative epicenter here in North Dakota for not only myself, but other artists. And if any of your listeners find themselves getting through Bismarck on a Friday they're a photographer. They're interested in in, in um, seeing the process firsthand. I have an open door policy here. You never know who shows up. And sometimes there'll be just three of us in here. Sometimes there'll be 20 of us in here on a Friday afternoon. So um, if any one of your listeners ever wants to see the process firsthand and they're in North Dakota, uh, they're welcome to my studio anytime. That is fantastic. Tell me what's next, sir. What, what, what's, what's on your calendar for the next upcoming projects? Well, I'm just going to try to get this book two, volume two for my Native American series finished. I, I've got to get these the 38 more images here. I got another, I think six more images this Friday. I've got six more Native Americans coming in this Friday. So I, uh, hopefully we can get closer to that so I can do that final selection. And then it's just going to be, these images haunt me like the, this, this plague image. You know, it's, it's almost a daily thing of setting some time aside, figuring out what we need and finding someone that can can help me uh, bring this all together. I, I obviously cannot do this by myself, but when you have you know over a hundred people that are willing to bring things and and people are getting their costumes together already, so we're we're still six months out from the shoot. And and there's there's a group if if, if you if your listeners want to follow along, there's a, a Facebook uh, event out there that they can follow along, and it's no vaccine for for death. And the idea is that. You know, we're, we're worried about this, uh, this, this pandemic so much, but the fact is that we shouldn't take advantage of life anytime. 
you know, or we shouldn't take it for granted anytime and that, that there's no vaccine for the human life. So I mean, Merrick came up with the, the title and we're just going to chase this and it's going to be, we're going to have a plague doctor and it's, it's going to be crazy. So I, I'll find myself spending the next six months just kind of planning for that. And it, it's just, it's about creating together. It's, that's the only reason we do it. And, and, and the image will haunt me until I get it on glass. And then the next idea has got to come. And then we just keep chasing that. So, um, but every, every week, you never know what can happen in my studio. We're doing uh, creative work all the time, um, documentary work as well, as well all the time. So I never really know, but I, I'm booked into, uh, I think I booked something into August already this year. So, and it's just come up with the next idea and just be open for everything and, and just try to uh, create uh, as much as I can. Well, thank you, sir. I've enjoyed every moment of this and, and I am going to be heading out to Bismarck sometime soon. I promise you. I, I would love that, Scott. We need to uh, we need to do your portrait, and I need to show this project. <laughs> it's it's a real honor to be. I, I love uh, Frames Magazine. I love their Facebook group. Some of the imagery out there is just spectacular. So to you know, for me as an artist to, to be given this opportunity to talk to you guys, um, it means a lot to me. So I, I really want to thank you very much. Yeah, it means a lot to us too. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Frames, because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.